You're listening to the What We Were podcast. This podcast is devoted to looking at important events and issues that affect us from around the world and that cry out for a new perspective that breaks the binary we often find ourselves trapped in. Our goal in doing so is to arrive just a few steps closer to what might be called the truth. Welcome. Today, we're going to discuss America's upcoming 250th anniversary and why that should terrify us to consider just how psychologically, if not also logistically unprepared for that day that we seem to be. So in just over two and a half years time, America will celebrate her 250th anniversary. Our Independence Day, by the way, not July 4th, as our Independence Day has kind of become known for a lot of Americans. It is our Independence Day. And I think that phrasing and and those words are important to maintain. Don't just turn this into just another day on the calendar with a number associated with a month. This is our Independence Day. So the question is, how do we ensure that July 4th, 2026 is actually a joyous celebration of our country and not a riot or a wake? So before we get into the actual magnitude of the moment and how it'll be recognized, I thought we should just briefly consider and try to grasp the impact America has had on the world in the past two and a half centuries. As of this moment, as I'm recording this podcast, America is 247 years, five months, and 12 days old. So, Let's look at the impact, particularly on a cultural level. Now, I'm purposely not looking at the negative stuff here. There's plenty of that. And we'll talk about that some other time on a different episode. And maybe I'll I'll get to a little bit of that here. But my purpose here is I want to get people to understand the cultural impact and influence that America has had on the world. Because when you stop to think about it and really get it, it's staggering. So the best way to see this and to really get it is to travel abroad and and actually pay attention while you're traveling abroad. Look at your surroundings. Take it all in. And actually notice the things that you ordinarily take for granted. And I got to say, I think Americans are not very good at this. I think that we, we go abroad and, and, and we look for the same entertainment and the same things that we're used to here in America. We don't notice how different it is outside of America. And because of that, I think it, it leads us to take 
what we have here for granted. But, you know, go to almost any country in the world and turn on the radio. You know what you'll find? American music. And not just, you know, contemporary hits. You'll find songs playing on the radio in almost any country in the world. American songs. Going back to as early as the 1950s, 1960s, certainly the 1970s, 1980s. You'll hear American music. Probably multiple radio stations will specialize in American music. And there will be some other Western music in there. But most of this stuff is coming from the United States of America. The most memorable singers and bands around the world are predominantly American. And I understand there are exceptions to this. I'm not trying to make a case that America is the only producer of quality music. But rock and roll, jazz, country music, disco, rap music, all of these were invented in America. You know, people of almost every nationality on earth know American songs that they can sing or play by heart. That is not true for almost any other country's music. You cannot just go anywhere in the world and hear French music or German music or Japanese music, Brazilian music, Italian music. You can't. You can find it in those countries. But with American music, you can find it anywhere. You, you can't even escape it if you wanted to. And I do want to often when I'm abroad. I want to escape it and I can't. So you can find American music anywhere. You, you can't avoid it. What else is there? You want something to eat while you're abroad? Well, whether you want fast or slow, expensive, cheap, morning, evening, you can pretty much guarantee that anywhere you go in the world, you'll be able to find some American cuisine nearby. Starbucks has locations in 84 countries. McDonald's has locations in 120 countries. Pizza Hut is in over 100 countries. KFC is in 147 countries. Hamburgers, pizza, steak restaurants, all of that can be found in any major city in the world. You need gas for your car? You can probably find a shell station nearby. What about shoes? Look at the shoes that people are wearing in foreign countries. Nike, if they have money. Nike, New Balance, Skechers, Crocs, Vans. These are American brands. In fact, there's a good chance that you'll see the native citizens of other countries sporting the American flag on their clothing occasionally. Or in a sticker on their car. Again, there's practically no country on earth whose flag is enthusiastically worn by the citizens of other countries, including, by the way, those of our adversaries, 
citizens of, of countries that we consider our, adversar- our adversaries. And besides the companies that I've already mentioned, you know, the logos of, of Apple, Google, uh, FedEx, Pepsi, they're all recognized by the vast majority of human beings walking the earth today. Personal Electronics, Apple again, Dell, Hewlett Packard, American companies. You want to see a movie in a foreign country? Chances are it's going to be an American movie. You, in fact, you, you might even be watching it from an American theater company like IMAX, which has locations in 80 countries. What about space? What comes to mind when you think about space? And it's not just you, by the way. What comes to mind when any human being thinks about space? Neil Armstrong? NASA? SpaceX? Maybe Blue Origin? The point is that America's global cultural dominance for at least the last 75 years is is almost beyond one's imagination. That kind of cultural impact has never happened before in the history of the world. It is not normal at all. And it's not permanent. Think about that. One country producing I don't have stats for this, but I would argue one country producing well over half of what makes up modern human culture everywhere. One country. And by the way, once again, I'm not saying this is all for good. Plenty of it is not. I'm I'm personally embarrassed sometimes that you know, among our chief exports as the United States of America are, are some of the most unhealthy snacks in the world. You know, a lot of them are just, they're cleverly marketed to hook young kids from an early age. And it leads to disease and early death for the people who, who can't resist that kind of stuff. That's, that's not an export I'm proud of. I also think, you know, a lot of our so-called musical and fashion exports are just inhuman trash in some, in some, in some aspects. I don't, I'm not a big fan of what we're exporting culturally right now all the time. So I'm not making a distinction between good culture and bad. I'm not making the case that America exports only good culture. My point is only that the American way of life in the world is almost inescapable in a way. I mean, you basically can't avoid it even if you tried. It's that pervasive. And now that there's basically no one currently living who remembers a time when it wasn't that way. Us Americans have convinced ourselves that 
American cultural dominance, us Americans have convinced ourselves that American cultural dominance is some sort of natural law of the of the universe and that it'll always be this way because I don't know, we live at the end of history. But I think that's a naive way of looking at the world and and how it moves and changes. And I think that, you know, what we're about to learn is that our time in the sun is beginning to come to a close. I think you're already seeing some signs of this, whether it's, uh, you know, popular new music genres emerging from foreign countries. You know, you see K-pop coming out of Korea. Even things like, uh, you know, the Saudi-backed Live Golf uh, Tour that's, you know, challenging the American Professional Golf Association, those kinds of things. I think these are signs of, of, of this paradigm shift, of this end of an era. And, you know, great events, including great anniversaries, are capable of helping to usher in a new era. And I fear that, you know, our 250th may be just such an event when the world finally sees that the emperor has no clothes. So the last time America celebrated a major anniversary was the bicentennial of 1976. 200 years, you know, that could hardly have been called a time of deep national unity. It was only uh, three months away from America's first 25th Amendment president, Gerald Ford, losing to Jimmy Carter in the presidential election of 1976. It was just over a year after the Vietnam War formally ended. This was not a time of great unity in our country. And yet, five years prior to America's bicentennial celebration in 1976, they already had a logo. They had, you know, it, it, this the, the bicentennial had been promoted on, on multiple stamps, postage stamps. There was a lot of planning underway. Uh, corporations were, you know, designing new packaging, red, white, and blue, America-themed packaging by this point. And, you know, the 1976 celebrations, they were attended by luminaries. Uh, Queen Elizabeth was there, a lot of other foreign dignitaries. There was even uh, something called Operation Sail. You know, there were these huge, tall, masted sailing ships from 15 different countries, two of which were from the Soviet Union. They sailed all the way to New York Harbor to commemorate our nation's 200th anniversary. Again, two of which from the Soviet Union, right? It was just two years prior to that 
And we're in the middle of the Cold War here, but it was just two years prior to that that Nixon visited the Soviet Union. We were in a a period of detente with the Soviet Union, which allowed, which probably allowed that to happen. You know, allowed an American adversary to come in and join in that celebration. The American freedom train, there was an American freedom train. It was, it's, it's a 26 car steam powered locomotive that launched a, a year before 1975 from Delaware. And it took a 21 month, over 25,000 mile tour of the 48 contiguous States. You know, back then, Disneyland and Disney World presented a performance called America on Parade at their parks. It was a twice daily performance that continued for over a year. In some small towns, the fire hydrants and mailboxes were painted red, white, and blue. Again, like corporations were redesigning their packaging to reflect the upcoming bicentennial by this point. Do you see any of that today? We have more capability to do those kinds of things today, and yet you don't see any of it. What does that tell you? There was even a bicentennial wagon train. I just learned about this recently, but there was a, a bicentennial wagon train. It was a pilgrimage from, it started in, in from the West Coast to the East. And there was a covered wagon from every state, represented from every state, that made a horse-drawn pilgrimage to Pennsylvania. And it began in like June of 1975 and ended at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania in July 1976. Horse-covered wagons from each state. And they stopped in various cities for celebrations and cultural performances. I mean, I, I don't think that anything approaching the magnitude of our bicentennial celebration is currently in the works for our 250th, our semi-quincentennial, right? Doesn't quite roll off the tongue like bicentennial, but our semi-quincentennial, our 250th year. And it should be a similarly momentous occasion as our 200th anniversary. And yet two years out, two and a half years out, it, it doesn't look that way. I know, by the way, I know there's a commission called, uh, it's, it's called America 250. And by the way, go there. It's uh, America, I think it's America250.org. I'll, po- I'll even post the link in the podcast notes. Go there, volunteer if you can, help them plan something. I know that there is a commission that's working on events and And I trust that they're trying to make this a memorable moment for America. But, you know, we're less than three years out. And there's there's barely any visible sign of any preparations underway. And honestly, I'm not really surprised by that. The American citizens who put on the 1976 celebration were from a different era. Some of them had, many of them had lived memories of 
you know, real American heroism in World War II and Korea. They lived through the worst of our Cold War with the Soviet Union. You know, that lived memory of American greatness fighting for what's good in the world and triumphing against, in some cases, real evil. That memory is all but gone. So, everybody knows that as a country, America is extraordinarily divided today. And a 250th anniversary should be an opportunity to come together despite our differences. But the way things are going, I just don't see that happening. I started noticing, you know, with our previous two presidents, 44 and 45, that, you know, patriotism became a partisan thing. When Obama was in office, all of a sudden, you know, people on the left were very patriotic, you know, red, white, and blue, and all that became very popular again suddenly, right? And it became a little bit more subdued on the right, where it was traditionally more obvious. And then when Trump became president, you know, the, the pendulum swung back the other way. And, you know, the right, conservatives, Republicans started kind of, you know, posting American flags at the back of their pickup trucks. And, you know, American flag apparel once again became not so widely embraced on the left again, but it was embraced on the right. So you got to figure that July 4th, 2026 is most likely going to just exacerbate that trend. Whichever party controls the White House in 2026, the other side is going to complain. And they're either going to you know, give the whole thing the silent treatment or they're going to actively protest and undermine it. Half the country is going to be in a patriotic mood, which will be really just thinly disguised taunting of the other half of the country, by the way. And the other half will bemoan the end of America as we know it. You know, in effect, American patriotism has really been hijacked and and and, and co-opted by two god-awful political parties. And we're looking at the real potential for violence on July 4th, 2026. Because I don't think either side is going to stand by and watch politicians from the other side preside over an Independence Day celebration in which their side is portrayed as the victors. So I want you to imagine it's July 4th, 2026. And either Donald Trump or Joe Biden are presiding over the events of the day. Now, other than other than for the sheer visual spectacle or to participate in the taunting of the other, the losing side of the 2024 election, would you actually attend? If you're, 
if you're truly an American patriot who wants to see the country unified, could you even stomach watching it on TV as President Trump or President Biden pretend to be unifiers? Pretend to be likable? And pretend to know the first thing about American history? By the way, do you actually believe either of those two men could answer even the most basic questions about American history or our Constitution? Do you think Joe Biden or Donald Trump could tell you what's contained in the 16th or the 17th Amendments? Do you think either of them have read the Federalist Papers or James Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention of 1787? Do you think either of them are big readers at all? I could do an entire episode on the fact that we never ask our presidential candidates or really any politicians for that matter to speak about American history to answer questions about American history why is that there should be an entire debate devoted solely to the subject of American history and where we've come from and yet political candidates for the last three decades at least they haven't been asked a single question about our history that I can remember. But getting back to, to 250, our semi-quincentennial, do you really expect this to be a proud moment in American history? I don't. I think the chances of an Independence Day 250 event presided over by Joe Biden or Donald Trump being anything other than a profound embarrassment for our country is really low. And what will be the reaction of the world if and when, as President Joe Biden or President Donald Trump are presiding over the 250th, as people riot and protest in the background, what will be the reaction of the world? And do you think our adversaries are not going to try to make the most of this moment in order to embarrass us? Do you think they won't be adding to this? What about every country that has a problem with the United States, legitimate or not, watching as American citizens tear themselves apart, tear each other apart, on their 250th anniversary as they scream in each other's faces and hold signs up. Is that a good look? Is that a good look for our country? How's that going to go? I want us to consider that we've become too political as a country and that, you know, it's, it's a sign of a national personality disorder that we actually line up 
and fill stadiums to hear politicians speak platitudes to us. Politicians that many of us literally carry cards in our wallets identifying ourselves with a political party. That we vote almost exclusively on the basis of our identification with that political party and rarely deviate. That our voting behavior is demonstrably, dramatically affected by 30 and 60 second TV ads from campaigns and political action committees with even more platitudes but, you know, set to dramatic music. And I want you to consider that this type of behavior is more indicative of a brainwashed totalitarian society, not a free one. And by the way, to the parents, you know, who bring their kids to political rallies, the teenage influencers who weigh in on politics but cannot be challenged because they're teenagers. If you as a parent are pushing your child to become an influencer in politics, you're a child abuser. Full stop. Shame on you. But, you know, I'm going to submit that we didn't used to be so gullible. We didn't used to be so easily manipulated by yard signs in dishonest 30-second ad spots. And we didn't used to be so enthralled by politicians. Politicians. You know, in most cases in our history, politicians weren't considered our greatest public assets. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, there was a time in this country when our greatest assets were our philosophers, our explorers, writers, inventors, artists. Those were our greatest public assets. We weren't always obsessed with the words of politicians in this country. One of the most famous speeches in American history is the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. It was a two-minute speech. What a lot of people don't know is that Lincoln was not the featured speaker of the day. He was not the keynote. The keynote speech of the day was a guy named Edward Everett. You know, Edward Everett at the time was really considered to be widely considered to be like the greatest orator in America. He had been a politician at, at times. He was a, he was a senator at one time. Uh, he was he was a pastor and and he was even uh, president of Harvard. But he was invited out to speak because back then Americans, you know, we didn't care so much about what politicians had to say. And because 
on an occasion like commemorating the battlefield at Gettysburg, it, it called for a unifying nonpartisan figure, which is why they invited Edward Everett to provide the keynote speech. And he spoke for two hours. And Lincoln was only given a few minutes to speak. Now, Lincoln was a special guy. We got, we had a really special president at the time. By the way, he had been through the Lincoln-Douglas debates many years before when he was running for the Senate. The Lincoln-Douglas debates, I think there were, I think there were seven Lincoln-Douglas debates. And each one of those was like three hours long. So we used to know our politicians a lot better. And Lincoln was certainly deserving of that moment more than certainly a modern American politician. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we didn't always do this. We didn't always feel so attached and so enthralled by politicians. So Edward Everett spoke for two hours. And Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was, was, was two minutes. In fact, Edward Everett later wrote to, to Lincoln and said, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Now, today we don't, we don't know a lot of Edward Everett's. Edward Everett's were a, were a staple in American society for a long time. You could put Mark Twain in the same category. You know, people who could draw a mixed crowd wherever they went. Figures who just just commanded respect and and inspired a, a sense of awe in everyone, regardless of political party or personal beliefs. And I I assure you that. Those people still exist out there, but they, they can't seem to draw the kind of audiences or earn, you know, the collective adoration that an Edward Everett or a Mark Twain did at one time. I mean, does anyone exist today who can draw the majority of Americans together in one room to talk about serious matters related to our country and get everyone to agree? I, it's hard to think of one. I actually think Fred Rogers was one of the last people who could approach that kind of universal buy-in and, you know, shoot us straight and we'd all be okay with it because you know what? It's Mr. Rogers for God's sake. And anybody who had a problem with Mr. Rogers could take a hike. And so we no longer have people like that. And we do, but we're not willing to accept them because we're too busy lining up and packing stadiums for politicians to hear politicians, low-rent politicians speak. Not intellectuals, not philosophers, not inventors, not explorers, not unifiers, politicians seeking 51% of the vote. 
So we no longer have people like that who can unify us. And I'm going to say, you know, this effectively means that we've lost a common social structure. If we have to strain to come up with a single name of a person who brings us all together, we have no, we have no shared social structure. And that's bad because, you know, it means that even on fundamentals, we don't agree. But it gets worse than that. History doesn't exist for Americans today. It's not just our political candidates who don't know. The vast majority of the voting public does not have even a rudimentary understanding of American history. With no history, we can't have any shared history, right? That's obvious. And what else do Americans have in common if not our history? What else what else ties us? What else binds us together if not our history? It's not religion, not anymore. It's not skin color. It's not even really many of our traditions. We've got lots of different traditions. You know, a country can be diverse and and different in a lot of ways and and, and still hold together as long as it has a, a shared understanding of the past and shared aspirations for our future. But we don't even have that. Because we don't know our past, so we can't practically plan our future. Now, many of you probably know, um, immigrants to the United States are required to take a naturalization test. It's a 10, 10 question civics exam, has questions like, you know, why did the colonists fight the British, right? You know, Approximately 93% of immigrants pass that test. Native-born Americans who take this same exam, who have been through our American education system, 65% pass. That's why I sometimes say that, you know, recent immigrants to America are more patriotic and more American than native-born Americans. And that's part of it. History isn't being taught at high schools anymore. It's not required at universities. So all Americans know of America is its government, which most of us, by the way, on either side of the political divide, tolerate at best and, and, and complain about constantly. I used to have a, an interesting conversation with friends from China about the difference between a country and its government or even a country's a country's people and its government. And it was an off it was often a hard concept for them to grasp. You know, it's in it's in the best interest of a powerful central government to convince its citizens that there is no distinction between the country and the government. And that you know, you should love the latter as you love the former. But there is a distinction and it lives in history and tradition, which have staying power that governments can only wish for. Governments come and go. Traditions and history and peoples, 
they have staying power. That's where the difference comes in. And I think it's important to be able to distinguish those two. And Americans used to get that distinction. But I'm starting to sense that we're losing it. We're losing that that distinction too. The same way that citizens of dictatorships have lost it or never had it. Without history as a context, the only thing Americans know today about America is its politicians and its government. They know who the president is. They know some people who serve in Congress and they know that they know what government agencies cause them the most trouble. They know a government that increasingly makes their lives more difficult, that spends all of their money and takes out loans on their behalf, loses the money half the time, starts unnecessary and unwinnable wars, invades their privacy, and generally just doesn't hold up to its end of the bargain. You know, America has done a lot of great things and also some terrible things over this, you know, kind of 75-year time period. We've meddled in the affairs of other countries constantly. We've, we've waged wars against people who never meant to do us any harm. Our government has helped topple democratically elected governments. Despite the bad stuff, though, the world has loved us anyway. Because American culture was simply irresistible. And why wouldn't it be? For the last century, America has been the single greatest generator of creative energy in the world. But when that ends, when the music stops, when the world stops caring about and buying what we're selling, what then? Not only is our economy going to shrink, but people are no longer going to have that distraction of American culture to make them forget about all of our very real shortcomings and intrusions. When there's no more Top Guns, no more Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga. And I think the best thing that can happen to America in 2024 is that we officially say goodbye to the two-party system. That we don't elect Donald Trump or Joe Biden. That no matter who wins the White House, whether it be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, that they pledge to reject the spirit of faction that Madison and Washington warned us about. If you love Donald Trump or you love Joe Biden, that's great for you. I don't, I don't really care. But I do hope that you have the self-awareness to understand 
that half the country hates the man. And that statement applies to both of them. And I don't really care how valid or invalid their reasons are for hating the man. And I don't really care how valid their reasons are for hating the party behind the man. America doesn't have time to work that out right now. There is a 0% chance that the other half of the country suddenly sees the light on either of those individuals or either of those parties and comes together in 2024 or ever. So stop trying. You know, a country really shouldn't be like a marriage. It was uh, John Gray, I think, wrote that book. Uh, men are from men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. It's about you know relationships and you know how you know, men and women are just very different, like different species from different planets. And because of that, those relationships are you know really tricky to balance and and. And sometimes in a marriage, you have to just, you have to go against your own logic and your own better judgment to just agree to disagree in order to preserve the marriage for a higher purpose. You have to accept that you're kind of like two different species on some issues, and there's no hope of ever seeing eye to eye on certain issues. Now, unfortunately, America is like a marriage right now. We are like two different species from different planets who are at each other's throats. And we have to find a way to agree to disagree about the particulars in order to preserve the fundamentals. My hope is that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump win the next election. My hope is that neither the Democrat Party, nor the Republican Party wins the next election. Not because I don't prefer one over the other. I do. But because I know that half of my fellow countrymen can't stomach either of them. And I'm willing to honor that opinion, whether I agree with it or not. Because America is full of amazing, talented, wise individuals who don't split us in half. And it's time we vote for someone who can lead us. Who focuses not on the sexy, headline-grabbing issues that divide us but on the fundamental aspects of what it once meant to be an American. To be free. To be rich. To be secure. And to be at peace with the world. That's all I have for today. Merry Christmas. Have a happy new year. Let's hope that 2024 is great. Please subscribe and share if you've got something from that. And uh, as always, be well.